Oh, not so. You all know what to do? Let's have a silent session. Just a couple of questions left, so why don't you, why don't I uh, look at these and see if I can answer them. In Losang, Losang Tenzin's biography, he, he, he mentions having auspicious signs in his dreams. How is that? How would you know it? That's a very large topic. Um, if you wanted to read some background on that, for example, when one is doing very intensive Vajrasattva practice for pur purifying the body and mind, uh, then some of the signs, there are a number of signs that are listed, uh, showing that purification is actually taking place. And some of these may be physical signs, other ones may be signs that appear in one's dreams, uh, such as uh, drinking milk like, and taking in white substances, also having foul substances appear or uh, kind of say emerge from uh, one's body. So purific purification is taking place. Auspicious dreams would, of course, include visions of one's guru, if one has very deep faith in the guru and the Buddha, pure lands, um, receiving empowerment. So this is a, a wide variety of auspicious ones, auspicious signs. So it's a big topic, but I think it's about what I can say right now. And then I mentioned that Kandala is a channel. Would I mind commenting, saying something about that? Yeah, Kandala, she's a remarkable woman. I'm happy to tell, tell, tell a little bit more about her. Uh, she's, I think she's probably about 40. I last saw her about four years ago, I think it was. Maybe something like that. Oh, yeah, it was. It was four years ago. Um, so she's probably about late 30s, maybe 40 or so. And she's, um, she's born in Tibet, raised in Tibet. And then, now I haven't memorized all the details, but it's an interesting enough story that I'll try to get them and not muck it up too much. Um, she came to Lhasa. She made, I don't know exactly where she's from, but I've translated for her very briefly just for her one-hour talk, and her, her, I found her speech very easy to understand, so it has to be central dialect, because uh, that's the one I understand best. And so she must have been born from there, and she made her way to Lhasa. And as I recall, she would kind of go into trance there, and she would be calling out in a loud voice and saying things that would normally get you in jail. Uh, maybe praising the Dalai Lama or something like that. But then the Chinese officials just thought she was crazy. You know, and saying this, they kind of just, okay, whatever, like that. And then she made her way down to India. It's an interesting story. I don't remember all the details, but she did make her way down to India and had, had a tremendous devotion to His Holiness. She really wanted to see His Holiness. Uh, but she kept, was, would repeatedly fall into trance. So eventually she made her way to India, came up to Dharamsala, and um, there was, and then there was at least one occasion when His Holiness was giving public teaching. So there'd be hundreds of monks, nuns, lay people there, and so she was she was there, and in the middle of the teachings, she, in a very loud voice, uh, started calling out. I don't know whether it was singing, but in a very loud voice, and um, kind of the disciplinarians, the monastic discipli disciplinarians, kind of kind of look after, make sure that people are not being rowdy or misbehaving. They kind of moved in on her and escorted her out, you know, rabble-rouser. And I think it might have happened once again. I think, so then she made her way back in again. And again, I think she was singing in a kind of, almost, kind of a loud, almost like operatic voice. And the, 
And he came in again, and then his holiness said, wait, you know, wait, wait. And she was just allowed to do her thing. Um, but she just said, everybody pause, you know, just let that be. Don't do anything. Uh, so she was, she, she had no status at all. She was simply one Tibetan woman, as far as anybody knew. Um, and she sought to have a private audience with His Holiness, but that's not so easy to do. So she sought in vain, uh, but she had just tremendous longing to be able to see him. So when His Holiness uh, heads out down to Delhi to go traveling internationally or traveling around India, uh, at least on occasion, <coughs> this is announced to the Tibetans living in Macleod Ganj, in that, in that village right, next, right near his, his uh, residence. And so if they wish to, then when he drives, when he drives out, with his entourage, then people will sometimes line the street and they'll just to have a glimpse of him and they'll be greeting him on the way out and just in fold, with folded hands. And so she heard that his holiness was going to be heading out. And so she, with I'm sure many other Tibetans, just out of their great reverence, stood by the side of the road. And then as he drove by, she, she saw him through the car window. She saw him. And she reported later what she saw was thousand arms of a Lokiteshvara radiant white being of light, but with that thousand arms of Baba Kadeshvara. So, very pure vision. Um, sooner or later, I don't know exactly when it was that she was able to then meet with His Holiness, uh, then he saw that she was authentic, but he also, so I heard, um, consulted with another very high lama who was living in Dharamsala at that time. He's also one of my teachers. Uh, his name is Kakajasin Dambarambache. He's actually, he passed away just a few years ago. Um, once again, I had the opportunity to translate for him and his first uh, teaching in the West. He came to California, actually translated for him twice, his first, sec his first visit, second visit. Uh, he's Tibetan, uh, but he's actually the incarnation of the head lama of Mongolia. And so a man of great stature, a layperson, uh, and lived a very interesting story, which is a very sh short side story. Uh, he was born in Tibet, and for much of his life, most of his adult life, uh, his identity as the Tuku of the head lama of Mongolia, kind of like the Dalai Lama for Mongolia, was kept secret. So he never became a monk, as far as I know, just lived very quietly. And then well into adulthood, then it was made public that this is Kafka Jetsun um, And so he, he also, of course, was made it, able to make his way down to India. He had a small residence. Um, oh, just, just a few hundred yards away from his holiness's residence. And so he lived there very quietly. He had a sm sm small circle of disciples there. People would come and visit him. I visited him at least a couple of times, as I recall. Uh, but his holiness asked him to check, you know, check her out, check out Kandula, um, what's happening here. And uh, so Jetsan Dhammarambaji did, and he confirmed that she is... Uh, one of the, I think it's a 12, Dema, that's what it's called, Dema, one of the 12 goddesses. Now, this is, obviously, this is a straight classic Tibetan presentation, no interpretation from my side, none needed. But there are 12 Dema, and these are like the, the goddesses or the Dakinis in the entourage of uh, Shri Devi or Panalamo. And Panalamo is a, a, a Dharma protector, and she's an enlightened Dharma protector, so there's mundane and super mundane. She's super mundane, so she's enlightened being. And she is the personal Dharma protector of His Holiness Dalai Lama, Panalamo in Tibetan, or Sri Devi. And she has these, again, these 12 Dakinis or Devis in her entourage. And it is said, 
it was identified that Kanola is, uh, what was it, either an incarnation of one of those or is channeling one of those, or maybe both. I can't quite remember. But they, they checked this out, and it was confirmed. Yet she's, she is an oracle. She's not simply a medium. She's an oracle. And she spontaneously falls into trance uh, and then speaks. That she's not there anymore. Her body's there, and, but there's somebody else speaking through her. And so she's, so she's consulted on occasion. Now taken, she's widely accepted as an authentic oracle in, 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 in Macau Gunge among the Tibetans. Um, and now more and more, I think largely due to this wonderful relationship with uh, Lama Zubarambache and Kandala, she's now coming out to teach, I think, more and more frequently. Um, so if anybody has the opportunity to, to listen to her, to be in her presence, uh, as I've said a number of times, she's an extraordinarily pure being. So that's what it means for her. And then she's, uh, she's widely called a Rangju Nanjorma in Tibetan. And Rangju means kind of a naturally or self-emergent or kind of spontaneously appearing. And Nanjorma is yogini. Um, and so I have no idea, frankly, I have no idea how much learning she has, uh, how, if she studied with any lamas in Tibet. I just have no idea at all. Uh, she certainly has been now, she's been in Dharamsala for a number of years. Uh, and so I, undoubtedly she received a fair amount of teaching since she's been there. How much beforehand, I have no idea. But when my wife and I and, and three other people met with her uh, four years ago, and we simply asked her for a bit of advice, any, any guidance she could offer. Um, again, from the advice she offered, I, I had no idea, and, and frankly I had no interest in the level of her erudition. What I saw was just like a pure mountain stream of just pure pure spring water, pure nectar, whatever you like, but it was just this utterly sublime dharma coming spontaneously, just flowing forth. Um, and it was so, I mean, it was completely traditional teaching, but absolutely contemporary, utterly contemporary. It was spot on, right for that, you know, just such a, a, to my mind, a very profound assessment of some of the strengths and weaknesses of Tibetan Buddhism at that time. And she was very critical on occasion, and then other times, you know, just, but then she was just sharing some very, very deep wisdom. Um, so, in one of the issues of Mandala, which is the journal for the F, uh, Foundation of Preservation of Mahayana Tradition, in one of their journals, there's uh, one of the editions of their journal, there's a whole kind of a bio of her. And I think you probably can get up that online. If you just type in journal Mandala, and then her name, I think it will probably come up. Because I think they have all their old journals online. So that's Kandala, remarkable being. And I hope she will be traveling and teaching much more widely throughout the world. So, and then one more of written ones. Uh, would you please tell us the Shambhala prophecy and all your beautiful stories around that? <laughs> I don't know. Anybody interested? I don't know who wrote the note. Is that interesting? <laughs> Something I've been interested in for a very long time, a Shambhala, Kala Chakra, because they do go hand in hand. A Kala Chakra is regarded by many people as kind of the apex of the kind of these classic tantras, stated, highest yoga tantras, highest yoga tantras. Uh, the Kala Chakra means literally the wheel of time. Um, and <clears throat> a little bit like a little bit like the Dujum Lingba's mind treasures, which they say it's not an interpretation 
or something I'm overlaying on them. But these, my, these Dzogchen mind treasures of Duchen Lingba, uh, it states, says that his Padmasambhava, speaking through Duchen Lingba, says these tantras are for the future. It says it very clearly, that at least I think two of them. These are for the future. Um, <clears throat> and then it's wide open interpretation. Well, how much in the future? One year? Because these, these came out in 1860s or so. So was he referring to 1870? Was he referring to this century, the last century? It's wide open to interpretation. But when, as I've read through those, poured over those, translated, polished, 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 um, I, as I met, this is reiteration, so pardon a little bit of redundancy. Uh, but on the one hand, these are utterly classic, representative, Magnificent treatises on Dzogchen, every aspect of the Dzogchen, the, the theory, the view, the way of life, the meditation, and so forth. And so they're utterly traditional. You know. no, I think there's no question about that. I don't, don't know anybody who does question that. On the one hand, on the other hand, as I've read through these and translated them, polished them, and two commentaries, um, I just have the, have the sense that they're remarkably contemporary, you know, that they're really addressed to this this time space we're living in here. That's clearly a subjective imp uh, interpretation, but it's a very strong one, as I feel. I have strong conviction in it. And in a similar fashion, Kala Chakra. So now to speak straight from tradition and not much interpretation, because um, it's interesting, and then you do whatever you like with it, just, just sharing with you. Um, but according to the, not just the Tibetan tradition, the Indian tradition, um, again, there's some variation of, of the stories here, but according to, I think, the primary account it was right towards the end of, his, of the, the Buddha's life uh, that the king of Shambhala came with his entourage, came from Shambhala south to India, sought out the Buddha and requested of him the Kala Chakra Tantra. Uh, this was, and I just was checking out this morning in the Madras, uh, kind of south central India, a very specific spot that is identified there. And so, and the, so the Buddha then manifested as Kala Chakra with the whole mandala invited the king of, uh, king of Shambhala into that mandala and then bestowed upon him the Kala Chakra empowerment. And then the king of Shambhala, Suchandra was his name, uh, then took those teachings back to Shambhala. And they call it Shambhala to the north. or Yeah, Shambhala to the north. And so there were seven, the first, uh, Suchandra was the first of seven kings, um, each reigning, they say, for a hundred years. And Shambhala was the, really the, overwhelmingly the primary place where the teachings on Kala Chakra were preserved. Um, although there's some indication, rather subtle, but some indication, there were some vestiges, at least some hint of it, in India. Something a little bit, a trickle, that was preserved in India. Um, <clears throat> and the seventh of those kings was named Pundarika. Get that right? Pundarika. Pundarika. I think so. Um, like it. And so, two names are kind of just flip-flopped in my mind. Um, <clears throat> but in any case, one of the later kings, his name was King Yashas. Uh, Yashas, he composed, of the, although the full Kalashaka Tantra was taken to Shambhala, very, very large. Uh, then the, the king named Yashas, um, <clears throat> I think he was maybe, I think, again, part, this can all be checked. You can Google this. Kalki, K-A-L-K-I, Kalki, Kings of Shambhala. Google that, it'll come right up. 
I think <clears throat> maybe the, um, in fact, I think perhaps the seventh king, the seventh king was Yashas, and he condensed the Kalashakra Tantra into just that, a condensed version of the Kalashakra Tantra. And then his son, Pundalika, uh, that this is wrong. I'm, I'm blowing a little bit because it was Yashas who was the first of the Kalki kings. So uh, I've lost the details. I, I can get them back. But in any case, this, I'm kind of getting bogged down a little bit of detail. But in any case, <clears throat> there, were, there were seven kings. <clears throat> and then starting with Yashas, uh, he was the one that united the various clans or castes and so forth of, of, of Shambhala and really kind of under the umbrella of Kalashakra. And he was the first of the th 25 Kalki kings, 25 Kalki kings, each of these reigning for 100 years. And the prophecies are that during the era of the 25th Kalki king, whose name will be Raudra Chakri, or the wrathful bearer of the ring or the wheel, uh, that during his reign, uh, that there would be, there would be a great, well, there would, there would finally be a full-fledged meeting, an encounter of a major kind uh, between our world and Shambhala, that they'll, they'll really be kind of visible. Uh, it's as if Shambhala, Shambhala is really an anomaly, but it's as if it's cloaked. If any old Star Trek, Star Trek fans, you remember how whole spaceship would be cloaked? And you just you look right through them and you can't see them? Well, that kind of notion, but it's not with some kind of technological cloaking device, but that Shambhala is accessible, can be perceived, you can visit there, see it, uh, if and only if, uh, you are very, very pure in body and mind. So a person with a great pure vision. And it's said to be located north of Tibet. So that could be Mongolia. It could be north of Mongolia. Um, and there are, there's a Nepalese text, a text written in Nepalese centuries ago. I don't know exactly how many. But let's just step back a little bit beyond that. Uh, roughly, and again, I have this in my notes, and so details are a little fuzzy, but... I think it was about the 10th century. I think it was the 10th century. I'll look at this, you can check very easily. Uh, the 10th century, there was one Indian yogi named Chilupa, and he, he knew of Shambhala, he somehow knew of Shambhala, and he had the purity of spirit, of mind, and so forth, pure vision, and he was actually able to go there. He went to Shambhala, and then brought back the, the condensed Kalachakra Tantra by Yashas, I think, but it's again something switched. Uh, and then the, the great commentary, the Vimala Baba, the stainless light, that I know is by Pundarika. Uh, Pundarika is said to be an earlier incarnation of the Dalai Lama. Uh, the King Yashas is said to be an earlier incarnation of the Penchen Lama. And so this, the, uh, the condensed Tantra and the, and the uh, great commentary, very large commentary, uh, were then brought to India and they were, they were uh, embraced by Naropa, the great Naropa. And he taught it, as I recall, to Atisha. And Atisha was one of those who brought it to Tibet. And then in Tibet, and then before long, then Buddha Dhamma, especially Mahayana Buddha Dhamma, pretty much vanished from India uh, for various reasons. Um, but all of the teachings in Kala Chakra were preserved then in Tibet for the last roughly a thousand years or so. And, so, and there are the detailed prophecies about each of these 25 Kalki kings after the first seven and their reigns and so forth, and then coming to the crescendo in the 25th. Now, as I said, just coming back to a little bit of personal narrative, uh, just for some reason I, can't, I really can't explain. I just, when you can't explain, then you say, okay, karma, that's what I'll have to do. But when I was about 22, I think I mentioned this, when I was about 22, I saw a really 
like a one rupee, like a 12 cent print, really quite crude, just a print of Kala Chakra with consort. And if you see, the, if you see Kala Chakra with consort, they look pretty much like a lot of others, you know, like Guya Samasha, Chakra Samvada, looks a lot like Chakra Samvada, and so forth. So there's nothing particularly remarkable about it. It looks like many of the other highest yoga tantra deities with consort. But I just saw that one, uh, and this very poor print, I mean, it's quite crude. Uh, and I was just, um, just intuitively drawn, she said, what's that? What's that? You know? And I was told, that's Kala Chakra. I said, okay, I want to know about that. I mean, clueless. I mean, more clueless than I was about Dzogchen, you know, a couple of years earlier. Uh, but I really wanted to know about it. Uh, so what's that? It just it intrigued me. And I, had, I was so somehow, and I got in my mind, but I had already had some contact with His Holiness's junior tutor. I think I mentioned this, yeah? T. Janaboche. And so I had some, some connection with him already. And so I don't know what got over, came over me, but I went down and sought out a, a, a personal audience with him, which was granted. And I asked him whether I could, uh, I could learn Kala Chakra. I'd been in Dharamsala maybe for a year. You know. So I'm basically learning how to you know, spoon feed myself. I mean, I was really a baby in Dharma. And I was asking about, I didn't really know it. I wasn't being pretentious. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm so special, I want the highest teaching. I just want, I know about, I want to know about that. You know? And uh, so I asked him uh, whether I could receive instruction on that. Maybe I even was so bold to ask him, I don't know. It was kind of like I was mesmerized or something. And I, I remember his face. He was an incredibly just kind-hearted, incredibly kind-hearted, the sage of sages, and incredibly benevolent. And so I asked him, uh, and he said, oh, that's a very good motivation, very good, but not quite yet. You know? And so, so I kind of just put it back in my mind and then got back to studying things that I could study and practice that I could practice. Um, so personal narrative, looking for prophecies, I'll kind of weave these two together. Um, so I just did all my other studies. I became a monk, studied the Sutrayana, received various other empowerments. Uh, while I was still a monk at the monastery, then his, uh, in, in Dharamsala, His Holiness gave Kala Chakra empowerment in Bodh Gaya. That was maybe beginning of 73 or so, maybe January 73. And our whole monastery basically went off together to receive it. So I went off with all the monks. Um, and there were about 100,000 people. 100,000 people gathered in Bodh Gaya. And not a toilet to go around. There was no toilet for anybody. And so that was pretty intense. Um, ooh. I got sick as a dog the whole time I was there. But nominally, in some kind of way, I received the empowerment. We all went back to Dharamsala. And then eventually, His Holiness encouraged me to go to Switzerland, uh, 1975. And so I was there for a couple of months before my teacher, my primary teacher at that time, or a very close teacher, Geshe Rapten. My His Holiness was my primary teacher, but Geshe Rapten was really the one guiding me from day to day. Uh, he had been appointed to become mon uh, the abbot of the monastery, in Switzerland, Tibet Institute it's called. Um, and I arrived there a month or two before he did, so that's when I did the translation of the Sakya history, history of the Sakya order. I had a lot of time on my hands, so I went down to the library of the monastery and I just was looking at texts and reading them. Um, and I came across um, a history, a, 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 a history of the Buddha Dhamma. In fact, I, just interestingly enough, I, I, I'd forgotten the title of it, and I thought I knew the author just this morning, because I was in correspondence with my wife about this, and I re-remembered, re, re because this is almost a 40-year-old memory, but I re-remembered the text that I'd studied 
uh, this Dharma, Dharma history by a great Kagyupa master of, in the 16th century. And so I just opened that up and started reading it. And lo and behold, there was a whole history of Shambhala in it. But it was one of those three-dimensional histories because it went to the past and right under the future seamlessly. You know. uh, quite interesting. So it was going back to King Suchandra receiving the Kala Chakra and then the seven kings and the 25 kings. And then it was uh, pointing among the, these dynasties. It was pointing, and while this king was reigning, this is what was happening in our world. And then this king, this is what's happening in our world. And now, here in the future, then, um, then will be the golden age. The golden age, will be, there will be this meeting. First it will be conflict, and then it will be peace um, with Shambhala. And it will herald in a... a, a just a, a, a profound discontinuity, a radical shift in our whole planet here. And we're really herald a golden age. And so I was reading that, and uh, it really, I so reading with a lot of interest, because, oh, I get to study Kala Chakra now a little bit. And, uh, but something that really struck me was that in this account, it placed the Buddha something like the 11, 10th or 11th century before the Common Era. 10th or 11th century. Anybody who knows even have one introductory lecture on the Buddha's life, you know, he lived probably in the 5th century or so, 5th century. So to say that he lived in the 10th century, that's a pretty big discrepancy. But that's what it says, you know, that's what it says. And I, I just, I looked at it and said, I don't, I don't know how you can possibly reconcile that with historical fact, because Buddha was a historical person. Not many people doubt that. And so I, I was looking at that, and, and then, oh, just by the way, the, the prophecy when you, when you do it by the numbers, Okay, the Buddha's back in the 10th century or so, and then you, you do 700 plus 2,500, then you come out for about 300 years from now, and that's when this golden era would begin. And most Tibetans say, well, it's about 300 years or so from now that this 25th king will come, and there you go. But, but it kind of just stuck in my craw, but I don't really think the Buddha lived in the 10th century. And so how do we reconcile this? Uh, happily, my wife, who reads Sanskrit, Mongolian, and bunch of languages. Uh, we had correspondence about this this morning. And I said, you might want to check this out, because when I was looking at this almost 40 years ago, 38 years ago, I thought, well, I, I'd like to make this make some sense in my mind. And I already knew that in Buddhism, time is relative. And so, for example, we're going into deep Buddhist territory, Mahayana Buddhist territory here, relativity of space and time. But it said that Asanga, I've alluded to a number of times, living in the 5th century, that he went physically to Tushita, the pure land of Maitreya. And he was there for a morning and received the five works of Maitreya, which have been classics ever since. They've been studied for the last 1,500 years by all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, absolute classics. Um, so in this one morning of receiving teachings from Maitreya, the coming Buddha, he received these five and then he brought them back after a morning of teachings. And when he came back, it was 50 years later in our time. Uh, and that kind, of, that kind of relativity of time is, is widely known in Mahayana Buddhism. It's just kind of like, yeah, of course. And so I knew that then if these chronicles of the history of Shambhala with their 100-year one, reigns of, of 32 kings, uh, if they say 100 years, it doesn't, it, 100 years there, it doesn't necessarily mean 100 years here. It could be, but maybe not. I mean, it's an open question. So... I looked at that and just tried to figure out, well, how could we get the Buddha to be back there in the 5th century where there's pretty strong consensus, that's when he lived. And if one did a, um, a, a, a 10 to 8 ratio, that is 100 years of Shambhala is 80 years of our years, then everything, of course, collapses. 
and then the Buddha gets back to the fifth century, but everything collapses, obviously, by, by that much. In which case, the time of Shambhala is coming quite soon. <laughs> so, again, you ask about, well, again, okay, I'm just weaving this too, because in my mind, this is all woven with just my interest and how I've learned out about it over the years. So I'm then moving ahead, 1988. No, I go back. Um, went back to India in 1980. Was there India, Sri Lanka, 80, 81. And it was in 81 when I was kind of only quasi in retreat doing a lot of yoga uh, up in Dharamsala after having studied with, quite intensively with Iyengar for a couple of months. Um, I met a fellow named Ron. Ron? Maybe Ron. I can't remember his last name. But he was a sociologist from a university in Newfoundland. I think it was St. John's University in Newfoundland. And his wife was a yoga teacher, so she was teaching me yoga. She's a very good, very outstanding yoga teacher. So I got to know him. He was a scholar, sociologist. They were both very interested in Buddhism, and they were kind of hanging out in Dharamsala. And, I was, and somehow the whole theme of the whole prophecies of Shambhala came up and how there would arise this kind of this evil king after, after the general prophecies are that our world, the one we're familiar with, uh, there's going to come a point when it's going really downhill in every way, uh, morally, economically, environmentally, socially, just really, really dark times, really the times of the dregs, the pits, a lot of misery, a lot of unrest, dissension, uh, really c catastrophes of many sorts. And during this time, there would be kind of a very charismatic leader who would appear. Uh, his name would be in the Sanskrit, Krinmati, Krinmati. And he would, with his tremendous charisma, but then when charisma didn't work, military might, he would pretty well take over the world and present himself as, you know, I'm, I'm everybody's savior. I've come to, I've come to your rescue. You're, you're in deep doo-doo here, and I'm coming to take care of everything for you. And so he gets this fantastic gathering, uh, you know, really pretty much conquers the world. Um, and that, but the prophecy goes that his consort, or it seems some woman in his, like a minister, it's not quite clear the relationship, but a woman, a, a wisdom woman, would be with him, and she'd be like a counselor for him. Uh, I don't recall whether actually his consort, queen, or simply maybe a minister or advisor, but that this woman would be actually a manifestation of Tara, Tara, like a, 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 an agent, a double agent. Uh, and she'd be there. She'd, she'd be guiding this king. And this king would then... I'm, I'm gonna, I haven't forgotten my friend, the sociologist. Um, and this king would have pretty well taken over the whole world. And then, having filled, okay, mission accomplished, I'm now the emperor of the earth, then this emanation of Tara would come to him and say, um, well, there's one place you haven't conquered, and that's uh, Shambhala. And he said, basically, let me at him. Where are they? I want to conquer that place too. And so that would be the catalyst for his then seeking out Shambhala. And that's when the time would be ripe for the, this world of Shambhala, which, as I said, it's just enormous. Like, what was it? 960 million villages. And it's an enormous place, but it might be fitting inside of a, a pinhead or a marble because space-time warp and massive, you know. I mean, it's, there it is. And it's someplace, presumably, north, well, north of Tibet, for sure. Uh, but suddenly, that would be unveiled unveiled for everyone to see. You know, it's been kind of, it has been cloaked. And so when this Krinmati and his forces, and he's really malevolent, uh, when they meet, then there'd be great battle, 
Shambhala would reign victorious, and that would be the beginning of a golden era, quite a long one, actually, of tremendous spiritual bounty, uh, hedonic bounty, truly tr- tr- a golden age. So I, was t- I just told that story to this friend Ron, the sociologist. And when I mentioned that uh, in the entourage of this, this kind of evil king or emperor uh, would be an emanation of Tara, his eyes grew round as saucers. I said, what's up? You know, what? Yeah, he was clearly showing some real astonishment. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting, but it's not like, whoa, you know? And he said, well, I want to tell you one of my dreams. And that is, I'm a little bit psychic. A little bit psychic. And he was maybe 40 or so at the time, or maybe, maybe a little bit younger. And he said when he was, he was, he was an American, and as a young man, he was an undergraduate student at... Um, UCLA, UCLA in Los Angeles, and he was a physics major. And while he was there uh, as a student, he had a dream. And in the dream, uh, he was a sociologist. He had no intention of becoming a sociologist. He was a a physics major. But in the dream, he was a sociologist. And he had been, as as a professor of sociology, he had been invited by an organization like the UN uh, to... um, check out kind of a kind of messianic figure that was drawing a lot of people uh, and to check him out. I mean, who is this guy? He's, get, he's getting a pretty strong following. This is before he became world emperor, of course, and as you'll see. And so but check this man out. Uh, he's, he's really becoming something of a, a force here. And he was part of a kind of a, 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 small, a small assembly of people uh, who were appointed by the, um, like a little council investigating team check this person out. And so they flew to some area. He said it was a, a desert area. They flew in, and as, they f- the, and the, as their airplane, it probably a, a charter, it, as it flew in, they saw this vast uh, just uh, assembly of looked like hundreds of thousands, millions of people that had gathered around the central pavilion where this figure was living. And so they kind of circled around. They said, well, this guy really does have quite a following. And uh, so their airplane landed, and then they were expected, so everything was fine. And this, uh, this, this group, uh, representatives of something like the UN, uh, then were escorted to meet this individual. Uh, and so my friend Ron said, well, impressive man, but what really caught his attention as he saw right next to this figure was a woman, and she was green. And that's what he really remembered, a green woman. And so when I told him later, Tara, he so one other story, and that is, this, is, this was told, be, to be my, to, told to me about in 1976. Um, 1976, so again, I just come back to Switzerland. And I met a fellow named Brian Coutillo, and unfortunately, he's passed away, but he was, he was of the generation of Jeffrey Hopkins, Bob Thurman, he studied with Geshe Wangel in New Jersey. Uh, very good translator, spoke Tibetan, spoke, spoke and wrote, uh, read Tibetan. Uh, he translated a, a, a book of Milarepa's songs called Something Drinking from the Mountain Stream, I think it's called. I think it's probably still in print. I'm a good translator. And so we met. I don't remember how it happened, but we met. And uh, so somehow we got to talking about Hopis or maybe just started sharing his experience, which was very recent, that there was one Geshe, a Tibetan Lama of the Galupa tradition, who was abbot of one of the major monasteries, I think Ganden, Gundan Monastery, one of the three major monastic universities. This was back in, again, 75, 76. 
And this geshe, who was not a renowned geshe, but a very competent scholar, good geshe, a fine monk, had been invited to the United States to travel around the country and give Dharma teachings. But it was very low profile. He wasn't famous, not many people coming, had quite a loose schedule. And Brian, this fellow that I met, was his interpreter. Uh, and years later, just a few years later, this, um, my teacher, Yeshe Rapton, invited that same geshe to our monastery in the French part of Switzerland. I got to translate for him for a month or so. In any case, this geshe is traveling around. And then out of the blue, they received a message from the Hopi elders of the Hopi tribe in, in the American Southwest, uh, who are known as, they're quite a remarkable tribe. I won't elaborate on that, but they are unique among the many tribes within North America. Uh, a people of peace, very global kind of vision. They were not so tribocentric, just focusing on their own tribe like many tribes are, but much, much more of a kind of a bodhisattva vision of embracing all tribes, all sentient beings. And they got a message from this Hopi council saying, would you, Lama, you know, this Geshe, would you, would you, if you have some leisure, would you, would you mind coming to our, to our homeland here, our reservation? Uh, we'd like to meet you. And he had no idea why, he just kind of, but, but he had a leisurely, leisurely schedule. So he said, oh, sure, happy to, you know, why not? You want to invite me? I come. And so they came, and th this I, I heard from the interpreter, so from his lips to my ears, not hearsay. And so they made their way to this magnificent part of uh, North America. It's called the Four Corners area. Yeah, we've seen it in a lot of movies. I mean, it's the American Southwest, these great big red bluffs. It's fantastic, very impressive, awesome kind of country. I've been there a couple of times. And so they showed up. So this geishi is interpreter, and the Hopi elders came out to meet him. And they welcomed him in, very gracious, and said, well, uh, if you wouldn't mind, would you just stay with us for three days? And after three days, we'll get back to you. <laughs> very vague. Uh, but it's a beautiful place. They were gracious hosts. He said, sure, happy to, very leisurely. So three days went by, and then they learned what was up. And what was up is that the Hopis have had, the Hopis, this particular tribe, has had for centuries prophecies that they shared with no one who's not a Hopi. And there were prophecies that in a certain time in the future, there would come red-robed men from the East who would be bearers of wisdom, and it would be very important for the Hopis to make contact with them. And so these Hopis must have read a newspaper clipping or something with a photo when they saw this red-robed man from the East, and thought, maybe you're representing those people. And so they invited him. Maybe, you're, maybe this is part of the prophecy. But the prophecy went on that um, when they met such a person, representative of these red-robed people from the East, um, that on the third day after their meeting, there would be an earthquake that would be heard around the world. And so they asked him to just kind of sit tight <laughs> and see if anything showed up on the third day. This again, I heard all from the interpreter, and, and I'm not interpreting anything. I'm just passing it on. Um, well, on the third day, there was a, an earthquake. You can, check the, you can Google this. I think it's 1976. Uh, 1976, big earthquake, China. That should do it. There was a big earthquake in China, and it was near a major city. And by way of the media, newspapers and so forth, radio, it was heard around the world. The Hopis were watching their televisions. Yes, they had televisions back then. You know, it wasn't just telegraph or passenger, you know, carrier pigeons. 
So they're watching their televisions, and they so oh, there's an earthquake. Everybody around the world is watching television or listening to radio. They can, okay, that's it. That's good enough for us. We didn't need actually literally hear it, because we we're hearing about it. That's good enough. And so they said, all right, we'd like to. So they, they invited the Geshe back in. They didn't speak English, these Hopi elders. They spoke Hopi, but they had English translators, of course. And the Geshe didn't speak English, but he had Brian Gutillo as his translator. And so they said, well, we'd like to share with you something we've never shared with any non-Hopi. Uh, because you seem to be a representative of people who are appearing in our prophecies, and that this is a very critical time, and that we need to make some contact with you. So we'd like to share with you our prophecies. And so there it went. So for some, I don't know how long it took, an hour maybe, then from Hopi to English, English to, Hope, uh, English to Tibetan, then they told the prophecies that they'd never shared with anybody outside the Hopi. Well, as they were t telling the prophecy, came to the end, uh, I'm going to say this again, the Geshe's eyes, and he's a very traditional Geshe. I mean, I translated for him. He's a really classic Galupa Geshe. Right? As he was listening to these people, his eyes became big as saucers. You know, <laughs> like, whoa. And when they finished, then he said, well, uh, very interesting, your prophecies. Now I would like to tell you our prophecies. And he then shared with them the Shambhala prophecies uh, because they virtually coincided with each other. They seemed to be like the same prophecy. And so it was kind of like contact. You know? and, uh, and, that and then what followed, Brian told me, was then the, <laughs> and the Hopis basically said, take us to your leader. <laughs> 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 and so they arranged to have a small group of these Hopi elders meet with this holiness Dalai Lama. And they did. I think it was about the next year or so. Um, and that is entirely behind closed doors. I have no idea. What happened? But they did meet with this holiness. And then they came back, and I've not heard a word since. So Brian, nothing. I know nothing about what happened after that. Because <coughs> it was a private meeting. And then Brian Cotillo was very taken by all of this. And so he uh, maintained some kind of relationship with the Hopis and offered services like, if you need any letters written in English, I'd be happy to write for you. And he was hoping to kind of maybe get a bit more information, you know. And they wouldn't. And so I don't know how long that went on. Um, but he had maintained contact, but he didn't really learn anything new. And then, unfortunately, I don't know, maybe five or ten years ago, he passed away. So I don't, I, I, I don't, probably something like cancer, I have no idea. But he's gone. So, in that regard, um, just my story then, on to 1988, we invited Genlam Rimba for the one-year Shamata retreat. And my interest in Kalachak was still there. I'm 38. And so I asked him, because we're living in the same house, and he's, t he's guiding only 12 people in meditation. And he has another interpreter, and I'm there. So we were well-stocked in terms of teacher and two interpreters. Um, so he had a lot of time on his hands. I had a lot of time on my hands. And I asked him whether he would give me some teachings, maybe now, what, 17 years or so after I'd first asked, 16 years later, uh, maybe it would be okay that I could receive some Kala Chakra teachings. And so I asked him uh, whether he would grant me any, some Kala Chakra teachings. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, there was one lama, Kitty Senshadamache, some of you will know the name, great lama, great lama, from Kitty, Kitty Monastery. Uh, and so his name is Kitty Senshadamache, Gulupa Lama, uh, outstanding lama. I never had the opportunity to meet him, but I know him by, by reputation. Lama Zupadamache also had a strong connection with him. Uh, Kitty Senshadamache was the only lama that anyone knew of who had received the full oral transmission 
of the, the condensed Kalashakra Tantra, this very, very large commentary by another king, Pundarika, the king of Shambhala. He'd received all the oral transmissions and commentaries on those, on those texts, as well as there was the, the, the great Bhutan, I think 13th century or so, incredible scholar. And so he then wrote commentaries, sub-commentaries, to the Tantra, to the, to the commentary, and then a number of other ancillary commentaries. So it was just tremendous scholarship. And this Kirti Tsenshi Rinpoche uh, was the only lama that anybody knew of who got out of Tibet, who had all of those transmissions. And transmissions are really considered to be very sacred. Because if it's cut, then you never get it back again. It's gone, right? So it's kind of like, it's a current. And he received this, but this was back in 1988. At that time, Kirti Tsenshi Rinpoche was quite ill. And you never know. I mean, if a person's ill, they any, we can all die at any time, but if a person's seriously ill, then he might, might die sooner than later. And His Holiness, knowing that Kirti Senshi Rinpoche was the only one that had this transmission, if anybody knew who outside of Tibet, then he called in some of the monks, tukus, yogis, living in Dharmazala. He said, look, uh, receive, I'm, I'm asking you, like maybe a half dozen or so, tukus and yogis, pretty much. Um, go to Senjaramuche and get the transmission. We mustn't lose this transmission. And so then they did. It was downloaded. It was really, it was simply downloaded from his continuum, his mind stream, to the mind stream of these yogis and, and, to, and Tukus, Rinpoche. And uh, Genlam Rinpoche was one of those asked by his holiness to receive it. And so he did. It took a couple of months. Um, and very intensive. But when Tibetans do this, they really, they really go full-time. And so, happily, Kirti Senshi lived for quite some years after that. It looked like he might die very soon. He lived for quite some years. Um, did wonderful work. I know he went to New Zealand, gave teachings there. Um, so, so again, again, this again may be kind of getting into irrelevant territory. Now we're late also, but just kind of wrap up. Um, so, when I asked Gen for teachings in Kalashakra, he said, well, would you like the oral transmission? I said, okay, what? Whatever that is, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. And so then he wrote back to his, the private office, please send us the whole set of texts. All the set of texts. It's like, I don't know, 2,000 pages maybe. It's a lot of material. And so it took a couple of months. And then they sent, because His Holiness had a special little printing done. About 2,000 pages of text arrived at the retreat center where we're doing this one-year Shamatha retreat. And uh, Gyan Lamarba then spent about the next eight months, four hours a day, giving me the oral transmission. <laughs> I have to say it was exhausting. <laughs> uh, and we finished it. And so it's there in my mind stream someplace. I, don't <laughs> I can't see it, but it's there. Take my word for it. And we'll end on that note. Why, you know, is this simply superstition or is this just simply tradition? Um, because Genlam, we had very little time. He spent four hours a day, eight months, for eight months, just giving the oral transmission with very little commentary. Uh, he's reading the text. It's a lot of material. The, the, the core text, the commentaries, the sub-commentaries, ancillary commentaries, it's just a tremendous amount of material. And uh, so what's, what's the point? Because he could have just been teaching me Kalachakra, could have given me some really teachings after. During eight months, I could be a lot of teaching. Uh, and I, could, I was fluent in Tibetan. He could have taken various commentaries, and I could have learned a lot. I learned very little. Because it was just straight oral transmission. It was downloading, just, you know, just like a computer. Uh, the little 
that little cartwheel, going on for eight hours a day, you know, eight, eight months. And so, but the reason for that, the reason why they do it, and they're doing it, they've done, been doing it for hundreds and hundreds of years, such as Kangyurumache, who is Amatya Ricard's first principal teacher, known as Kangyurumache. There's one other thing, he was an incredible lama, tremendous realization. Thomas Merton met him, the Christian monk, said he was the most impressive man he'd ever met in his life. Kangyurumache. And he, and he wanted to come back and, and study with him, Thomas Merton. And then he went off to Bangkok and he died there. He got electrocuted in a bathtub. Um, but he was deeply impressed. Well, Kangyur Ramachi, one of the things he was renowned for doing was he'd give the oral transmission of the Kangyur, 108 volumes of the Buddhist teachings. And when he would do this, being the highly realized being that he was, and then passing on this transmission, it had been you know, going right you know, for centuries, centuries back, then hundreds, hundreds, monks, nuns, lay people would gather and they would sit for, I don't know, eight hours a day and he would read through every single sutra and tantra in the Kangyur. And people would just listen and they're just sitting there. and having. But they make sure, don't cough, don't cover up what he's saying because you just want that coming in. Right? So that was much more than I received. I mean, that's 108 volumes, enormous. Other people received the whole oral transmission of the 18 volumes of Tsongkhapa's collected works. There's a transmission. Well, that'll take a long time. Well, this was just 2,000 pages or so, but he, he took his time, gave some commentary here and there. But again, what's the point of all of that? You know, because you're really, there's no commentary. It's just really downloading, having it come from the Lama who has the oral transmission, the current coming to your ear and going into your mind stream, into your substrate consciousness. And um, the basic rationale for that is that your hard drive is your substrate consciousness. What you can access with your software is your... Conscious mind, your ordinary mind, okay? You remember what you had for breakfast this morning, okay? That's sort of in the substrate, but easy access. There's not much noise, not much junk of experience and so forth between this, bre the morning, this morning's breakfast and now. Um, but it's all stored there. It's all stored there. And so if you receive the, the oral transmission of the whole Kangyur, the Buddhist teachings, uh, even if you didn't understand anything, because lay people will come, and this is, you know, rather, it's not easy Tibetan, um, but it's stored. And the whole idea is that in this or some future lifetime, when you really become a realized yogi and you have free access to, I mean, basic shamatha and then probably some realization on top of that would be helpful, then you have access to all those memories, teachings, and oral transmissions that you've received in the past. And so now you've got a great big database of material you can tap into you know, from a much higher, higher level kind of awareness. And it was, and it, it was, when I said a bit arduous for me, this is Gyanlam Rimba. He's a, a really accomplished yogi. And that's how he spent four hours of his precious time for eight months. So that was quite awesome on his part. So, something about Shambhala. It's a human realm. Human beings live there. Of different traditions. Not just Buddhist. Tremendous harmony, uh, many, many enlightened sages, a place where people very quickly gain profound realization in Kala Chakra, but other traditions as well. Um, and while it's a human realm, it's also a pure land. Really, it's a pure land. Because that's why you can't just kind of walk there. But according to some ancient texts, I mentioned one written in Nepali, uh, it is possible to go there physically, but not. And that is, you can't just rent a jeep or a four-wheel drive or an airplane 
and just go there. You won't see anything. You'll see probably desert or just nothing. I mean, not zero, zero, but you're going to see something, uh, empty land. Uh, but if you go there, according to the guide, uh, then it entails very, very profound transformation of your body and mind, a whole alchemical transmutation that is step by step by step as you make your way to Shambhala. And if you have sufficient purity, then your whole vision, your whole way of the, the reality that rises up to meet you is rising relative to the whole, all of these changes in your body-mind until eventually when the purity is sufficient, then there's Shambhala. Uh, and so kind of a parallel universe, out of phase with ours, uh, but they can see us, we can't see them. So there's kind of a certain hierarchy. there. So for centuries and centuries, Buddhists from all over Central Asia, going back to India, have been praying to be born in the age of Shambhala, the golden age, to be born in Shambhala, where they can quickly achieve enlightenment. Uh, they pray even to be on the wrong side, to be, you know, when there's this great battle with Shambhala. Well, if I don't have the merit to be born in Shambhala and all of that, well, at least be born at the time of Shambhala and to be in that war, even fighting against Shambhala, because that'll connect me with Shambhala. And after I've died in the battle, then I can be reborn. You know, some connection, some connection. So that's been going on for a long time. And my wife, Vesna, sent me a prayer just a week or two ago. Very short prayer, really short, like it was one verse written by, again, the Jethendambaramuche, an earlier incarnation, the one who was alive back in the 1930s. And it was a prayer that he wrote, uh, and is a prayer to be reborn in Shambhala. And he wrote it specifically for the thousands upon thousands of monks who knew they were facing imminent execution at the hands of the Stalinist regime that had, was really dominating Mongolia at the time. And so he made sure that everybody got a copy. It was 30,000 monks were just lined up and machine gunned, uh, as, we, as well as wiping out almost all the monasteries in Mongolia. So it was just a prelude to what later happened under Mao Zedong in Tibet. Um, but they, they knew they were about to be executed, and they were executed because they were monks. That was it. But the, but the, the head lama of the country, Jesen Dhammaramache, wrote this one line, this one verse, one verse prayer to be born in Shambhala that they would recite just before they got it their lives were terminated. So you can see this is taken very seriously. Uh, it, it, just not to say anybody here or anywhere else, oh, now you have to believe what I said because I said it or anything nonsense like that. But I will say a, a factual statement that the whole story of Shambhala, the guide of Shambhala, the prophecies about it have been taken very, very seriously for a very long time by people of great stature, the Penjian Lamas who are playing a crucial role there, the Dalai Lama is playing a crucial role, the Jetsin Dhammarambache playing a cru crucial role. Uh, just I spoke with Vesna this morning on Skype, and she said that she read one, because she she's researching this right now uh, for some papers she's writing, that the, the head lama of Mongolia, the Jezendambarabache, he's going to be one of the two great generals, one of the two great generals under the fifth, 25th Kalachakra, a Shambhala king named Hanuman. That will just be his name, not a monkey god. Or something. So uh, taken very seriously for a very long time, um, but looking ahead in that regard, even though short-term looks very dark, long-term looks very good, but it would be very good to be born in Shambhala, or at least at that period of history, uh, so you have contact with Shambhala. That will serve you well. So, something like that. I really don't know much about it. <laughs> I, I mean, you now know everything about it that I know. You know, I just, I just told you, I, just, I emptied my beggar's satchel, turned it upside down, and every no, I, I've now shared it with you because I really know almost nothing, nothing more. <coughs> After this one-year retreat back in '88, then Gen Lamrimpa was asked by um, 
one, one of his students in, in Seattle, Washington, if he would actually give some teachings on Kala Chakra, because he also had faith, does have faith in it. And so then after the retreat, then he did. It was all over. Then he lingered for a couple of weeks. And he gave teachings on the sixth session, uh, Kala Chakra, sixth session Guru Yoga. And gave a lot of teachings. I mean, he showed he, he really knew the stuff very, very well. And so I translated the, the, the Kala Chakra, Kala Chakra Guru Yoga, six, six, six session Guru Yoga. I translated the text. I was his interpreter for the teaching. And they were really, I mean, really knowledgeable, very illuminating. It's more than simply Guru Yoga. Of course, it's about that, but he gives a lot of teaching, stage regeneration, stage of completion, references to the six-phase yoga, the Shadanga Yoga of Kala Chakra, which is really renowned. Um, and so that was writ writ written up. We, I, I translated it, it was transcribed, we edited it, and uh, so that was, that's been published years ago by Wisdom Publications under the title Transcendent Time. Tr no, Transcending Time. Transcending Time. There's that. And there's something just flickered in my mind when I was speaking. One night kind of footnote. I'm sure I can remember it. Well, it, it, it's, it is remarkable that, his, that the Kala Chakra is the highest level. It's right there with Guya Samaja, with Chakra Samvara, with Yuajuyugini, Yamataka, and so forth, which generally are not given to people. This highest level of Tantra and empowerment are generally not given to people who are simply not qualified to receive them because there's a commitment with them. It's the highest level, highest level of Tantra. But when it comes to Kala Chakra, then His Holiness for decades now has been giving this very, very widely. I don't know, I don't know how many times, but it's many times all over the world. He's giving it again in Mongolia, just by the way, next year in August. He's giving it in Mongolia. He's giving it in Ladakh sooner than that, before then, some, coming up pretty soon. Uh, but he gives it frequently. Um, and the, it's, when it's stated, public announcements come out, he's, Kala Chakra, he's giving the Kala Chakra empowerment again. Again, people just flock to it. And anybody can come. Bring your children, bring anybody who has enough faith to come. You're welcome to come. And it's always Kala Chakra for world peace. I mean, that little slogan often comes with Kala Chakra for world peace, for world peace. So there was something else in my mind, but I can't quite tease it out again. Yeah, I think well, there's something else, but it doesn't come up right now. I went way over time. But that's about all I know. The rest is where I can't even see it. <laughs> is there someplace? <laughs> Hola, so see you a little bit later.